Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Carolyn Shapiro, Associate Professor at Chicago Kent College of Law and Co-Director of the Institute on the Supreme Court of the United States. We will discuss her article, Democracy, Federalism, and the Guarantee Clause, which will be published in the Arizona Law Review. So welcome to the show, Carolyn. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. I was so glad you reached out to me, in part because, um, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, I'm a, a little tiny bit of a guarantee clause nerd myself, primarily because a friend of mine wrote a note about it when we were in law school together <laughs> many, many moons ago. But for listeners who might not be as familiar with the guarantee clause, which is maybe one of the uh, lesser known constitutional clauses, as it were, uh, c- could you talk a little bit about exactly what the guarantee clause is and to the extent we understand like what was it intended to accomplish when the constitution was drafted and ratified so those are two uh different and somewhat complicated questions but i'll start with the basics the guarantee clause is in section 4 of article 4 of the constitution And what it says, what the Guarantee Clause itself says, is the United States shall guarantee to every state in the union a Republican form of government. But to understand it, I think it's useful to think about the rest of what Section 4 of Article 4 says. So the full section says the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion and on application of the legislature or the executive when the legislature cannot be convened against domestic violence. So there are basically three parts to Section 4, the Domestic Violence Clause, the Invasion Clause, and the Guarantee Clause. And so one way of thinking about what the Guarantee Clause is doing is, is how does it parallel those other two, those other two parts of Section 4? Um, and I think the, the historical evidence about what exactly the framers had in mind is, is complicated. And like many things about the framers, there are different ideas pointing in different directions. But the bottom line seems to me to be that the framers were concerned that the states not threaten each other and that they have compatible forms of government that were unlikely to encroach on each other's interests. Uh, most concretely, that meant no monarchy. They were, and that was, that may sound kind of silly, like of course there would be no monarchy, but actually there were talk, there was talk at the time, maybe we'd have a viceroy, maybe we'd have a regent, maybe some states would experiment with that. And the framers following um, Montesquieu, this this major political thought leader from, from Europe, believed that monarchy was inherently tyrannical, inherently expansionist, and that it just simply would not be possible to have a state that was governed by a monarch in the same nation as other states that were not um, that were not monarchies. Well, so to the extent we understand what a quote-unquote Republican form of government meant at the time of the founding, like to, what do you think that the features, the kind of defining features of a Republican form of government might have been at that point in time? Well, it was different 
in the in what became the United States than it was in England. So it, it's worth just saying a word about why people were even talking about republicanism at the time. The, the concern about republicanism in general was not so much about a specific form of government, but more about how to create a government that would promote virtue and would prevent and operate against corruption and tyranny. And the, the word republic kind of harkened back to the, the Greek and Roman republics, which the which thinkers at the time saw as having succeeded, at least for a while, in achieving that balance. The specifics of what that meant varied from, from place to place then. So in, in England, um, people believed you could have a, a republic that was led by a monarch, as long as there was also the House of Commons to, to check the monarch. Um, but And the reasons that they thought a monarchy and, and an aristocracy would, would be consistent with the Republican ideas is that they saw Republicanism as requiring people who had the leisure and the disinterest to sort of sit back and think great thoughts and, and not be, in, not be uh, swayed by corruption. And that would be sort of the, the landed gentry, right? The people who were independently wealthy and had lots of time to think and be educated. They could be the, the, the leaders and the, the rulers of the country, and they would be not susceptible to corruption, but checked uh, by the House of Commons. In the U.S., we didn't have the same kind of landed gentry. We had a much flatter class structure. We were very far from the the from England, obviously. We didn't have representation in the House of Commons. And so the ideas about what would lead to promoting virtue and, and preventing corruption were very different. And what the framers came to conclude is that it required some form of representative government. Uh, it, it, what exactly that looked like varied. Uh, obviously, the framers were comfortable with the idea of slavery. They were comfortable with women not voting. So it certainly wasn't representative government as we understand it today, but it was representative government. It had the, the leaders had to be chosen. The rulers had to be chosen by some part of the people. And they also, the framers also thought that things like separation of powers was very important to their vision of republicanism, again, because it would help to prevent corruption. Mm. Well, so the text of the guarantee clause seems to apply imply almost kind of a duty of the federal government running to the states. And I wonder, like, to what extent was the guarantee clause, like, invoked or used or interpreted in, in the early republic? Not much. Uh, during the early republic, there were some statutes that were passed in, in the very early years that would give the president the authority to act. And those statutes were based on the authority of both the guarantee clause, but also the invasion and domestic violence clauses. Uh, and they were, but they gave the president the, the power to intervene under certain circumstances in what was going on in state. So that was how, how Congress reacted to the guarantee clause. But, but over time, the guarantee clause really fell into disuse in, in large part, it appears from, from the historical record because of slavery. It, it was clear to abolitionists that slavery was inconsistent with the guarantee clause. It was inconsistent with a Republican form of government. And they actually 
argued that many of the the items in the Declaration of Independence, the ideas in the Declaration of Independence, like equality, uh, should be read into the Constitution through the Guarantee Clause. As a result, there was reluctance on the part of anybody who was either pro-slavery or worried about the dissolution of the country due to uh, due to the disagreements over slavery to do anything with the Guarantee Clause. There were other reasons why it fell away, um, having to do with the ways in which it was invoked. But, but just to give you the sort of the most prominent example, in, in 1842. Rhode Island had uh, it suffered some major internal strife. Rhode Island had never made a new constitution. After the founding, they just adopted the Royal Charter as its as their own constitution, and what that provided was for extraordinarily lopsided representation in the legislature. The representation was essentially uh, by by town, and as the, the the cities on the coast became more populous, the the malapportionment became more and more egregious. Equally significantly, the franchise was very restricted. Only men who owned uh, at least $134 of real property and their eldest sons were allowed to vote. Uh, There was a lot of dissatisfaction with this arrangement, and there was a group of people called, uh, led by a guy named Dorr, who basically tried to write a new constitution they held their own convention, they elected their own legislature, and it appeared that there might might be some violence, although there never was really any meaningful violence in Rhode Island. But there was a point at which there were two entities that were claiming to be the legitimate government of Rhode Island, and they both went to President Tyler and said, hey, we're the true Republican form of government, you should recognize us see the guarantee clause. And Tyler said, I'm not getting involved in this one. There's, and he didn't believe he had any obligation under the domestic violence clause, because at that point there was no violence. Congress did not act, uh, although there were some people in Congress who thought perhaps Congress should do something to determine which form of government was the Republican form of government, if, if either one was. And eventually, by the time that the Door Rebellion faded out, the Rhode Island adopted a new constitution that was much more equitable, although still, of course, only allowed men and white people to vote. Um, and uh, the 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 case, the issue would have gone away, except that there was a, a lawsuit brought by a guy named uh, Luther, who said that his uh, he, his house had been invaded by um, by somebody who claimed to be working for the original government, so the, the the government that wasn't the led by the Dorites, uh, Luther himself was a was a Dorite, and his house was invaded by these law enforcement officials or people claiming to be law enforcement officials, and he sued them for trespass. What the case came down to was whether or not the original Rhode Island government was legitimate, and by the the case got to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, well, we can't decide that that government was not legitimate under the Guarantee Clause, in part because that would mean that everything that has happened in Rhode Island since the Dora Rebellion is a nullity, because there would have been no government. 
And so we're just going to say this is a political question and we're not going to weigh in. If Congress wanted to refuse to seat a congressional delegation from such a state, it could do so, but we are staying out of it. Uh, and that you can imagine lots of good reasons for the Supreme Court to decide not to decide that particular case, uh, but it has stood for the proposition more or less ever since that questions that arise under guarantee clause are political questions that are non-justiciable. So you argue in your paper, or you rather, I think even just observe in your paper, that the guarantee clause became important in the run-up to the Civil War, and especially in Reconstruction, if not necessarily in a kind of a strictly legal sense, certainly in like a kind of political and inspirational sense. How and why do you think that happened? Well, it did. It continued to be a source of inspiration to abolitionists. Uh, it continued to be a source of inspiration to African Americans. Uh, after the Civil War, there were conventions of African Americans in the South, in, in in the different states, and many of them pointed to the Guarantee Clause for to claim that they had a, a, they should be given the vote, they should be given the franchise. Um, it, so it it was it stood for something very definitely, as you say, I think aspirational about what the government was supposed to look like. The Congress during Reconstruction also relied on the Guarantee Clause before the 14th and 15th Amendments were were enacted. So, And they did so in ways that don't seem, that would today be based on the 14th or 15th Amendment, but those amendments didn't exist at the time. So what Congress said was that, for example, the Confederate states could not re-enter the Union unless they provided universal manhood suffrage, which which meant granting the franchise to African-American men. They said that Nebraska could not join the Union as a new state without, without granting universal manhood suffrage. So they relied on, and they relied explicitly on the Guarantee Clause, at least in part, for for these acts. Today, again, the 14th and 15th Amendment do that work. So the Guarantee Clause is doesn't doesn't provide that function, but it was understood at the time that it, it gave Congress that level of power to tell states who they had to give the vote to, which is something that had never happened before. Hmm. Well, so the the kind of conventional wisdom today is that uh, kind of as the Supreme Court said in a different context in in the door situation that the guarantee clause is non is non justiciable because it only presents political questions that you know courts can't really deal with. I, I wonder. I mean, do do you agree agree with that conventional wisdom, or do you think that there there might be circumstances emerging that would suggest? Areas where the guarantee clause might present uh, or or might address problems that could be dealt with by courts. So I really, in my paper, I I accepted the idea that it's non-justiciable. I don't really take that on, and and for the most part, there is an enormous amount of scholarship out there arguing that the guarantee clause should be justiciable. It usually makes that argument in the context of individual rights or individuals who are somehow claiming that their right to Republican form of government 
has been violated by by some by some action or some some state government structure. My, I, so I don't really delve into that argument, but I do think that the implications of what I say, which which, which we can get into in, in more detail, are that states themselves may have interests that are not always being adequately protected. And that I could imagine situations in which states themselves might sue each other or sue the federal government uh, under the guarantee clause. And I really haven't taken a position and haven't don't know what I think, to be perfectly honest, about whether those cases would be justiciable. I'd have to give that a lot more thought. Well, so you point to some kind of relatively recent political developments and suggest that they may present guarantee clause related problems. I I wonder if you could kind of point to some of those and explain how you think that they implicate the guarantee clause and the values that it was intended to promote. So this goes back to the idea that the guarantee clause is about ensuring that the states have compatible forms of government, forms of government that will not lead to internal strife in the United States. And and I do talk about why slavery itself, in the end, created a major guarantee clause problem, leaving aside the the moral horror of slavery and the fact that African-Americans themselves had rights were being violated as a matter of state rights, states' rights and state sovereignty and state compatibility, slavery created an enormous amount of tension between the states. The free states could not govern as they saw fit. They could not protect their own residents from incursions by uh, by people who by slave owners who were coming in and claiming to, and abducting their residents, claiming on, on a claim of, of of slave ownership, for example. Likewise, uh, and much less defensible, of course, but the but the southern states and the power structures in the southern states argued that their their forms of government were being implicated by the free states and the free states' lack of respect for the the forms of government and the forms of uh, and their laws uh, and their property rights that were developed in the slave states. So. Even before the Civil War, there was, even though people weren't relying on the Guarantee Clause explicitly to make these arguments, there, this was a demonstration of the problem of incompatible forms of government. Today, the, the problems are quite different in the sense that we all we have 50 states. They all, every state is, is at least uh, has a legislature that's popularly elected, et cetera. But we are seeing a lot of strain on our on our democracy. We're seeing a lot of of trends that scholars of democracy and scholars of authoritarianism are pointing to to say we could be beginning an anti-democratic spiral, a, a, a situation where we are going to find ourselves losing our commitments to to democracy, to self-government. And uh, that once we enter that spiral, it's actually very hard to come out of it. Now, there's a lot in what I just said that I think needs to be unpacked and explain why it has to do with the guarantee clause. Uh, The first is simply why am I using the word democracy when we've been talking about the Republican form of government? 
And the, the, there are sort of two main reasons for that. One is that the Republican form of government unquestionably did mean to the framers some form of representative government. We would today call that democracy. The framers sometimes called that democracy and sometimes didn't. They were sometimes uneasy about using the term democracy because they thought of some of them at least sometimes used that term to refer to direct democracy, which they thought would be unworkable at the in in at a, in a country the size of the United States. They were not in favor of, of direct democracy, so they they sometimes used those terms in opposition. But what we today think of as democracy is quite consistent with their vision of the Republican form of government as a, a representative government. The second reason why I talk about democracy is that it has become such a significant part of our identity as a country in a way that I think may, means that it's not possible to have non-democratic states be part of our country, right? If a state were to decide today that they wanted to have a monarchy, whether they called it a monarchy or not, that would be extraordinarily problematic for the rest of the country. We would not be comfortable, I think, having one of our states decide, well, we're just going to provide for hereditary leadership and our current governor is going to be governor till he or she dies and then their kids will become governor after them. That, that would not work in, in, our, in our country, in our system of government, because it's just not compatible with our commitments as, as a nation uh, our most fundamental commitments to how to self-government. And likewise, because we would be fearful of the what, what federalism scholars would call the spillover effects, that if you had one state that was operating that way, it could have anti-democratic spillover effects on other states, whether because the framers were right, that monarchy is inherently expansionist, or because it would spread these anti-democratic ideas to other states uh, in a way that would be sort of contagious, uh, that could lead to the downfall of a Republican form of government in other parts of the country and perhaps even nationally. So that's the, the gist of why I use the term democracy and why I think when we're talking about the Republican form of government today, it, it really has to be understood as what we in modern parlance, call a democracy, even if the framers might have used a different different term. The problems we're seeing today, then the threats to our democracy today are not, which I which I write about in the paper, I certainly am not unique in observing them, and I rely very heavily on other scholars for, for their for their work and their analysis, but it they arise from the extreme partisan polarization we find ourselves facing these days, uh, and the way in which that extreme partisan polarization undermines what these scholars describe as the, sort of the two central requirements for a healthy democracy, which I paraphrase as being a, being a gracious winner and being a gracious loser. The idea is, if you think of your opponent as your mortal enemy, and you think of your political opponent's victories as the worst thing that could happen, you will do pretty much anything you can to prevent them from winning, even if those things are 
anti-democratic. So the one of the principles that these these scholars talk about is the recognition of the legitimacy of one's political opponents, the people one disagrees with. The the second major principle they talk about, which ha- so that has to do with being a gracious loser, right? Being willing to lose. The second principle that they talk about is what some of them call forbearance, uh, which means not taking advantage of every single lever of power at the time that you are in power, just in a way that would, in an anti-democratic sense, prevent the other side from regaining power. So, for example, uh, forbearance would require not changing the laws about who can vote or where they vote in such a way as to make it impossible for the other side to win. In my mind, the most egregious form of failure to, to engage in forbearance is extreme partisan gerrymandering. Extreme partisan gerrymandering that makes it impossible for the party that's not in control of the redistricting to ever regain control of the legislature or the congressional delegation or even come close in a a state that is itself either majority of that party that's not going to succeed or close to 50-50. And we see this happening, right? This is, this is, we read about this all the time. North Carolina, Wisconsin are states that are pretty much swing states at a at statewide level, but historically in the last round of redistricting have been, the, have been extremely gerrymandered uh, by Republicans to make it impossible for Democrats to take control of the levers of power, even when a majority of people who vote are voting for Democratic candidates. Mm. Well, so in, in your paper, you suggest that we ought to understand the guarantee clause as not just reflecting the relationship between the federal government and particular states, but also the relationship uh, among the states themselves. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you think that is important and how it relates to this idea of spillovers and uh, extreme partisanship. Right. So the what we see today with this extreme partisan polarization, it, it leads to what these, what these democracy scholars talk about as, as these anti-democratic spirals. It's a sort of a creates an environment where people want to play tit for tat. So if, if, uh, if a state that is controlled by one party engages in extreme partisan gerrymandering, another state might think, well, we should do the same thing. Another state that's controlled by the other party might think, well, we should do the same thing because otherwise our party uh, is, is at such a disadvantage. And there's evidence that this happens. So, you know, the, the two cases that the Supreme Court recently considered relating to extreme partisan gerrymandering were one was from North Carolina and the other was from Maryland. North Carolina's Republican-controlled redistricting and in Maryland, it was democratically controlled redistricting. And there's evidence in Maryland that the Democrats, or at least some of the Democrats who were involved in that redistricting, were quite interested in in uh, they changing the nature of their congressional delegation to make it more democratically dominated as a response to what they saw as extreme partisan gerrymandering by Republicans in other states. So you can see how 
it, as, how easy it is for people to say, well, the other side is doing it. I should do it too. In fact, I have to do it too in order to protect what I think is important in terms of governance. Uh, and when you enter that kind of tit for tat, things become uh, it, very hard to control. It's very hard to stop. As a result, my argument is that the guarantee clause recognizes that reality, whether the framers weren't obviously thinking necessarily about the precise problems we have today, but the guarantee clause was about this idea that what happens in one state in terms of governance can have unhealthy spillover effects in other states. And the guarantee clause says the federal government is the one that can and should step in under those circumstances. What I argue is that the, the entity in the federal government with that power is Congress and that Congress can, not just can, but probably must act to pr protect our democratic institutions in the states under certain circumstances. The specifics of exactly when Congress can act are, you know, are highly contextual in, in my view. And there are things that the framers might have thought were non-Republican and might have been willing to invoke federal power to prevent that today I don't think would, would trouble us. For example, uh, if a state today were to decide to experiment with a parliamentary system as opposed to uh, the, the separation of powers that we uh, into three branches that we see in our federal government and in, in every state, the state were to decide, well, let's try a parliamentary system instead. I don't see that as threatening our underlying democratic values, even though the framers were very committed to the idea of separation of powers as a fundamental element of Republican form of government. But today, I don't, I don't think that would raise those kinds of concerns about incompatibility. What does raise concerns about incompatibility are states that engage in the kinds of practices that I talk about in the paper, like extreme partisan gerrymandering, uh, extreme voter suppression. Uh, another example is the what I call lame duck lawmaking, which is uh, what we saw happen also in Wisconsin and, and in North Carolina, where a, uh, a Republican governor is what and was voted out. The Republicans retained control of the legislature, but during the and also a Republican attorney general was voted out. And during the lame duck session, while the Republican governor was still in power, the legislature changed the law about the powers of the governor and the attorney general to take powers away from the governor and the attorney general so that when the new Democratic administration came in, their powers would be significantly limited. I think that's pretty that's that's quite anti-democratic, anti-small d democratic, uh, and that's the kind of of uh, of actions that could lead to anti-democratic spillovers, and that Congress, under the guarantee clause, could step in to to limit or to regulate. Mm. Well, so it, Carolyn, in, in closing. As you recognize in your paper, people with strong partisan commitments could and might 
I guess, sort of accuse you of simply expressing your own partisan commitments in your paper and in relation to the kind of suggestions that that you make. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you think that kind of criticism is misplaced and why people should be concerned about the problems you're identifying in relation to the kind of guarantee clause principles, irrespective of their partisan commitments. Well, there are a number of different parts to that answer. The, the first is uh, just an empirical uh, fact, which is political scientists have uh, are, have established with pretty strong certainty that the polarization we currently see in our politics is somewhat asymmetric. That is to say, the Republican Party has moved much further to the right than the Democratic Party has moved to the left. That doesn't mean there's not polarization on both sides. That doesn't mean that 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 only one side is uh, engage, in, willing to engage in these in these kinds of tactics. It it just means that the polarization is somewhat lopsided, uh, and the the further the more polarized one side is, the more likely they are to see, in this case, the Republicans are the more likely they are to see the Democrats as their mortal enemies, uh, which is as I as I said before completely inconsistent with a functioning, healthy democracy. As, you, as your listeners have undoubtedly conclu- under, concluded already, I, I, am, I am a Democrat. But I don't think that my, my arguments are intrinsically pro-democratic party. They're pro-democracy, but they're not pro-democratic party because they, uh, they recognize that, in fact, both sides have a legitimate claim on power under certain circumstances and in certain places. And then in order for our country to function appropriately, we all have to recognize that and be willing when necessary to lose. Uh, and also be willing, as I said, not to engage in uh, the, the use of, of our powers when we are in power uh, to set to an extreme that might prevent the other side from being able to to retake power, even if they are able to persuade a majority of the voters to, to vote for them. Uh, I think that as a the, the the polarization also means that in fact when I make these arguments, they sound more partisan than I want them to be than I think they are. Uh, They sound more partisan because as an empirical matter, right now, Republicans are more likely, although not only, they're not the only party to engage in these tactics, but they are more likely to engage in these tactics. Just that when we look around and we see what's happening in the states in terms of, of voter suppression, in terms of extreme partisan gerrymandering, et cetera. It doesn't mean that Democrats might not engage in those tactics if they thought it was to their advantage. In fact, Maryland is, is a case in point. But the uh, the fact that that's what's happening right now makes my arguments against those tactics sound partisan, even though they, they aren't, uh, they aren't intended to be. And they require me to accept that sometimes the party I support is simply not going to prevail because that that's the way democracy works. Mm-hmm. Well, Carolyn, thanks so much for coming on the show. 
and giving us a little taste of the guarantee clause, its history, and how we ought to think about it today. Thank you so much for having me. Shadow. 